Hey there, everyone. So do you ever get tired of the same old ways of seeing things? Do you ever get the urge to want to cut through the world of everyday surface appearances and look for the light that's rare in the depths? Well, then maybe, just maybe, the wisdom of podcast is for you. Because in this podcast, we explore great works of philosophy and literature and art and try to pull out of them what's most invigorating and interesting and inspiring. Whether they come from the works of Plato or Dostoevsky or Picasso, here we explore ideas that move mountains and rock the soul. So come join us, won't you? Come worship at the altar of ideas and come celebrate the dancing of thought. And, um, don't be afraid of the leaping sparks, as you can be certain of one thing. They will kindle the light inside of you. Welcome to the wisdom of... Coming up, Kierkegaard's Diary of the Seducer. Okay. Hey there, everyone. So it looks like I'm uh, going solo today at the Wisdom of Compound. That great absurdist storyteller uh, that you've all come to love will be back next week. Okay, so today I want to talk to you about one of Kierkegaard's works called The Diary of the Seducer. Um, if you don't know, Kierkegaard was a Danish philosopher born in 1813 and he's sometimes referred to as the father of existentialism. Oh, and uh, by the way, if you're interested in Kierkegaard, I did talk quite a bit about him and his religious view in one of our earlier episodes entitled The Story of Abraham and Isaac. Okay, but first, and as usual, a brief summary. So the Diary of the Seducer appears in Kierkegaard's first published and uh, quite large work called either or. The diary is about Johannes, an aesthete, who, through careful manipulation, seduces a younger 17-year-old girl called Cordelia until she becomes drawn to him. Kierkegaard believed that there was ultimately something empty and escapist in this way of living, and so he thought it would eventually lead to despair. Okay, well, so where do I start? Well, you know what? Why don't I just quickly give an outline of uh, Kierkegaard's larger view? Because I think that'll give us some context to work with. Okay, so basically Kierkegaard believed that the individual passed through three stages on the way to becoming a true self. First, there's the aesthetic stage. Then there's the ethical stage. And finally, the religious stage. Now, very quickly, because I'll get into this in more detail in a few moments, but basically, the first one, the aesthetic life, is one where an individual lives for and relates only to themselves, and only seeks personal enjoyment. It's a hedonistic life. 
Now, the next one, the ethical life, is one where an individual relates themselves to other people and acknowledges that one has duties and obligations to them. And finally, the last one, the religious life, is one where an individual relates themselves to something which transcends them and even other people, namely God or the Absolute. Okay, but now let's get into some more detail and try to relate this to Kierkegaard's Diary of the Seducer. So, according to Kierkegaard, like I said, the essential characteristics of the aesthetic way of life are self-interest and pleasure. But for Johannes in particular, it's a kind of cultivated, reflective pleasure. More specifically, he's a connoisseur of seduction. I mean, this is what he does. He goes around detailing his long-drawn-out manipulation and seduction of Cordelia, from which he derives great enjoyment at the expense of others, of course. Actually, before I continue here, it's interesting that Kierkegaard doesn't give Johannes a last name, isn't it? I mean, I don't know, maybe this is meant to suggest that he has no intention of having kids and so, in a way, that he's someone who will always act for himself and no one else, not the species. In other words, that he's someone who readily receives and accepts life, but refuses to give it. Actually, it's interesting. Johannes's self-love here would be directly opposite to someone like Plato, who makes love or eros all about immortality through one's progeny. In other words, love for Plato ultimately means forsaking yourself so that someone else can come and take your place. Well, not so for the aesthete Johannes, it seems. Anyway, okay, so now one important aspect of Johannes's outlook on life is that fundamentally for him, what's interesting or exciting or boring takes precedent over what's good or bad or right or wrong. In other words, the value of aesthetic pleasure trumps all other values, moral or otherwise. Actually, another very famous account of this sort of view is given to us by Oscar Wilde, and that's in his novel The Picture of Dorian Gray, where he too expresses his belief that art, or the aesthetic, should be completely disassociated from moral considerations. Well, so it is with Johannes. He's all about the interesting life of enjoyment, which he takes to be much more important than the ethical. In fact, ethical terms are usually just not part of an aesthete's vocabulary. Anyway, okay, so another very significant aspect of Johannes' approach to life is that he views everything from, from an aesthetic distance. Most importantly, of course, Cordelia. That's to say, he takes a disinterested view of her. Now, what does this mean to take an aesthetic or disinterested view of life? Well, in the world of the philosophy of art, it usually means something like this. It means... Adopting an aesthetic viewpoint or having an aesthetic experience that's disconnected from one's own personal desires. And the reason for this is that personal interest in something, it's said, gets in the way of seeing the beautiful object for the work of art that it really is. In other words, 
If you're blinded by your personal relationship with something or someone, then you just can't see it for what it is. You can't see the universal beauty in it. Okay, so like I said, there is something of this in Johannes' outlook. At least this aspect of being distant or, or disconnected from what he contemplates or admires. That's to say, Johannes enjoys Cordelia, but he does it from a distance, from the height of a crow's nest, as he puts it. He observes her and life in general from far off, extracting its pleasure while avoiding all of its storms and attachments. He's a passive observer. He's a voyeur. He plans his strategies and catalogues all aspects of Cordelia, but all without real contact or commitment or connection. In fact, he gets so far away from reality that the pleasure that he experiences is derived almost entirely from his own imagination. It's all about making things as interesting as he can. He turns life into art. He recreates the world in his own image. Okay, now, Kierkegaard thinks that there's something, I don't know, deficient about this way of living. Actually, quite a few things, but let's just focus on one. So one of the things that he suggests is that the aesthetic life is just too self-interested and detached, and so it won't yield genuine contact with another human being. Now, you might think, well, why is this a problem exactly? I mean, why would Johannes care about this? Well, wait a second. Real love and commitment are important because, bound by duty and obligation, they force us away from living in a series of unconnected present moments and instead place us in time, giving us a sense of life as a whole. I mean, that's what happens when we make a choice to commit to someone and make principled choices in general. All of a sudden, life acquires a long-term significance that it didn't have before. And it does this because we have to take our future with our loved one or larger projects into account and be responsible for them. And this gives our life a purpose or meaning that it didn't have before and couldn't have had, when the only point before was to avoid boredom at all costs. This is what it means to move to the ethical stage of life, says Kierkegaard. And this is one reason why living the purely aesthetic life often reveals itself as empty and leads to despair. Because you're just living fleetingly, outside of time, as a bundle of events without cohesion and without meaning and without a real sense of self. Okay, well, uh, what should I talk about now? Well, you know what? To be honest... I do think that there's another issue here with Johannes and with the aesthetes' way of life more generally. And it has something to do with their, their spending their time living on the periphery of life as a spectator and living in their imagination and not engaging with the world. I mean, I wonder if there's a deeper underlying explanation for this. Now, sure, Johannes and the aesthete would say that their, their detached irony is deliberately chosen. It's simply about their carefully cultivated, artful approach to life, 
one designed to give them the greatest pleasure and satisfaction. But I wonder if there's more to the story here. More specifically, I wonder if this uncommitted way of living is a symptom of some sort of deeper weakness or fear. You know, for some reason the figure of Socrates comes to mind here. And here I'm thinking in particular of Plato's great dialogue, The Gorgias. Now, um, be patient with me. I promise I'll make all this make sense. Okay, but there's a section in there, in The Gorgias, where the very effectual, the very practical, Callicles, admonishes Socrates and his philosophical way of life. He criticizes Socrates' constant philosophizing. He wonders why Socrates spends all of his time doing philosophy, specifically spending his time squabbling in some corner with a bunch of others, often humiliating them with his petty logical skills. Why doesn't he actually get out in the real world? Callicles asks. Instead of talking, why doesn't he act? Take real action and, and be effectual. Ultimately for Callicles, the life of philosophy is, well, just plain unmanly and immature, he says. Basically, too much philosophy and too much chatter shows that one hasn't grown up yet. It shows that one isn't strong enough to face the real world. In fact, Callicles says that philosophers like Socrates spend their time in hiding, avoiding the, the city centers because they're so ill-equipped to function properly. So, ultimately, I guess what I'm saying is that Callicles is pretty skeptical of Socrates' motivations or intentions. In other words, maybe there's a bias or a handicap that lies at the root of Socrates' push to philosophize. In fact, Callicles suggests that there is. Namely, there's a sickness or an anemia in Socrates, he says. And it's this that's causing him to turn to philosophy. If he were healthy and strong, he'd leave all of that behind and get on with life. Actually, you know what? Now this in turn makes me think of how Socrates is viewed by, by Nietzsche. Oh, and uh, as an aside, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that Nietzsche was much more influenced by the Callicles-Socrates discussion than people have tended to think. Anyway, so Nietzsche, though he had some good things to say about him, was also very skeptical about Socrates and his projects and his intentions. That's to say, he saw in Socrates' hyper-rationalizing in his intellectualization and in his constant chattiness and, and continual arguing, a sign of wariness, a sign of sickness, and, as he says, a weakening of the instincts. In other words, Socrates, he thought, was wary of life, incompetent to deal with its hardships and its tragic nature. Like Callicles did, Nietzsche even called Socrates sick. Sick in the sense that he just wasn't strong enough to face life. And so, well, what did Socrates do? Well, Nietzsche said that he compensated for his lack of vitality by using the only weapon he had, namely intellectualizing and theorizing about things. But all of this theorizing and abstracting and arguing, it's all cold and distant and, well, anti-life. 
Well, so why have I been talking about this? Well, here's the thing. I'm not saying it's exactly the same. But this chattiness, this hyper-reflection, this distance from, from life, and this fear of living in an engaged and committed way and facing life head-on, it sounds a bit like Johannes, doesn't it? It sounds like the life of the aesthete. Could it be, then, that, not unlike the Socrates that we get from Callicles and Nietzsche, there's also a sickness or dissolution of the instincts that plagues the aesthete, and it's this that motivates their voyeurism, their detached irony, their spectator view of life, and their lack of commitment. And actually, you know, there's something really interesting. So, after Johannes's project of seduction, Kierkegaard doesn't say whether or not Johannes ever consummates his relationship with Cordelia. I don't know, maybe that's because he didn't. Maybe it's because when it was all said and done, Johannes just couldn't seal the deal. Maybe at the heart of his project to elevate himself above others, and to rise above life, and to sophisticate and manipulate and wax poetic, lies the most resentment-producing and debilitating of all ailments. Impotence. Listening to the Wisdom of Podcast. If you want to know more about this topic or the podcast in general, visit wisdomofpod.com. And as usual, we love to read your questions and comments. Reach us at info at wisdomofpod.com or on Twitter at wisdom underscore pod. Our next episode Thomas Nagel. Ooh.